Welcome to the Apawa Baptist Podcast. If you'd like to find out more about our church, visit us on any Sunday or online at opawa.org.nz. Well, when I was in my early teens, I was invited to a dance party at which it was rumoured a lot of hot young women would also be attending. Me and my friends were very excited. Like most young men in that scenario, I was also a little terrified, but keen to make the best impression possible. Who knows? I might even meet my first girlfriend. Woohoo! Yeah. But one thing I lacked, apart from conversational skills, self-confidence and charm, I lacked a pair of cowboy boots. You see, in 1980, 41 years ago, last century, last millennium, they were the height of fashion. Very briefly. So after some determined whining, you'll be familiar with determined whining, those of you who've had children, my mum brought me a pair, which were all well remarked on on the night but not used much because they were not fashionable for very long. And no, no girlfriend resulted, sadly. See, I wanted desperately to fit in. To be assured that I was okay, which back then was not how I felt about myself. Being comfortable in my own skin was at that point years away. It's a basic emotional need, I think, to be accepted and to feel acceptable. It's true for us as individuals, but it's also true for us on a community level. New Zealand wants to fit in to the wider world. For decades, back when I was a young fella, we rubbished TV programmes made here, preferring stuff that was British, which back in the day was the byword for best. Same with our writers, our artists, our architects, who were all assumed to be second rate, and how broadcasters spoke like they were fresh off the boat, having come from the offices of the BBC. We had this cultural cringe. We weren't quite comfortable with who we were, Such a public life, if you wanted to swing the argument for something, you got an overseas expert to weigh in. The unstated logic was that we should listen to them because they're not local, they're not second rate. Overseas was best. Now the Beehive Building in Wellington is a classic example. Now the original plan in the 1960s was to complete the old Parliament buildings, which you can see there on the right, in the same style as that 1908 design. Stunning. But apparently, Keith Holyoke in 1964, do you remember Keith Holyoke? Sounded more English than the Queen. He was from Pahiatua. Was having dinner with a Scottish architect. And on the back of a napkin, the Scottish architect came up with that. 
Now, while the beehive is interesting to look at from the outside, on the inside, it is the most confusing building I've ever been in. The ministers in it are utterly isolated from each other, which is the antithesis of what politics is supposed to be about. You do not bump into your colleagues in the beehive if you can find your way to the office, which is actually quite hard to do because it's circular inside. But it was designed by an international architect, a Scotsman no less, so it must be good. You're right. Australia's gone through a similar process, and maybe it's part of going from being a colony to an independent nation. We were very slow to grasp our independence. The UK Parliament passed a statute of Westminster in 1931, which gave its colonies the right to do anything they wanted legislatively. It was years before we adopted that right for ourselves. We wanted to fit in. And it was emotionally hard, I think, for New Zealand to separate itself from Mother England. As the UK declined after the war, so we got closer and closer to the US. I think it just feels safer when you have powerful friends. Well, 3,000 years ago, you knew there'd be a point, the same feelings and fears were in play for God's people Israel that emerged from slavery in Egypt, which was one of the great powers of their day. And now they're on their own, and it made them nervous. Everyone else, and I mean just everyone else, had a king to look after them and to lead them. Kings were cool, like cowboy boots in 1980 Auckland. They'll come back one day. You heard it here first. <laughs> Kings made their people feel secure, like post-colonial Kiwis cuddling up to one of the great Anglo powers. God had anticipated his people's craving for a king. So he said this to them in Deuteronomy 17 before they entered Canaan. When you've come into the land that the Lord your God has given you, I will set a king over me, like all the nations that are around me. You may indeed set over you a king whom the Lord your God will choose. One of your own community you may set as king over you. You are not permitted to put a foreigner over you who is not one of your own community. Even so, he must not acquire many horses for himself or return the people to Egypt in order to acquire more horses. Since the Lord has said to you, you must never return that way again. And he must not acquire many wives for himself or his, else his heart will turn away. Also silver and gold, he must not acquire in great quantity for himself. All the fun stuff about being king has been ripped out here, isn't it? When he's taken the throne of his kingdom, he shall have a copy of his law written for him in the presence of the priests. It shall remain with him, and he shall read it all the days of his life, so that he may learn to fear the Lord his God, diligently observing all the words of this law and these statutes, neither exalting himself above other members of the community, nor turning aside from the commandment. So, God was concerned that his kings would have lots of horses, that they would deal with Egypt, that they would have lots of wives, become very rich, 
And he was keen that they immerse themselves in the scriptures and not see themselves as a cut above the rest. Okay. He went on. Deuteronomy 7. When the Lord your God brings you into the land that you are about to enter and occupy, and he clears away the nations before you, and when the Lord your God gives them over to you and you defeat them, then you must utterly destroy them. Make no covenant with them, show them no mercy. Do not intermarry with them, giving your daughters to their sons or taking their daughters for your sons, for that would turn away your children from following me to serve other gods. Then the anger of the Lord would be kindled against you, and he would destroy you quickly. But this is how you must deal with them. Break down their altars, smash their pillars, hew down their sacred poles, and burn their idols with fire. So the king's to-do list gets a bit bigger. So clear out the Canaanites. Don't make international treaties. No intermarriage, no idolatry. In fact, eliminate it. Well, what's all this in aid of? I'll try and look at this list from God's perspective. At a deeper level, I want my people to worship me alone, to stay true to the covenant that I've made with them. I know that a king, as the unquestioned leader of the nation, will have enormous sway over the spirituality of the people, likely to be more than the high priest and the priests combined. I want people to look to me for their needs, not, not to the other nations, and ask yourself, if I'm in your corner, who else do you need? Horses, I don't have a thing about horses, but they've, they represent the cavalry. So it's like, in your terms, saying don't have an army or a large military reserve. Trust me to defend you rather than relying on your own resources. Especially not Egyptian horses. I delivered you from them, so I don't want you going back there again. Why would you return to the fire that burned you once? Once bitten, twice shy. I think it's in the Bible somewhere. Should be. Don't have a lot of wives. Don't be a sexual glutton or a show-off. What kind of life is it for a young Israelite woman that, that turns the king's head one day to be wife number 100 in the harem? One wife is plenty for most men. Amen? Hear the deep amens. In those days, if you made a treaty with another king to seal the deal, you married one of his daughters and he married one of yours. It was ancient world diplomacy. Many wives, particularly foreign ones, was an indicator of pagan alliances. I don't want my kings to rely on pagan nations. I want them to rely on me as their god. They will prosper if they trust me, not trying to fit in with the other nations. And further, pagan wives will bring their gods with them and they will draw the king into their idolatry. It's inevitable that husbands want happy wives, whether they are the king or the local blacksmith. So they will at least tolerate their wives' idolatry, or worse, join in. 
And then there's wealth. Kings can tax their people. And they're always going to prioritise their own comfort over the needs of the people. It's part of being a fallen human being. They're all going to want servants, land, a summer palace at Galilee, amazing meals, the best wine. They're not going to see themselves as first amongst equals. Rather, they're going to enjoy being the unquestioned leader who gets what they want. That's what other kings are like. They enjoy the very best. I know it seems harsh to you that I want the Canaanites gone. But if they're still there and tolerated, then their pagan religion will sneak in. If you give the devil the weirdest foothold, that's all he needs. They'll corrupt my people from the inside out, who will not see it coming. Idolatry threatens my whole plan to save a people to myself and through them redeem all of creation, all of you. I'm going to be deep diving some more into the history of Israel and Judah next term, but spoiler alert, all God's concerns about kings outlined in these passages come to fruition. Idolatry does rot the spiritual heart of the people from the inside out. Worshipping foreign gods turns out to be a far bigger threat than being invaded by foreign armies. Well, Saul is Israel's first king. He looks the part, tall, good-looking, good soldier. Did I mention tall? But he's fatally insecure. Acting out of that brokenness, he tries to be his own priest. He does deals with kings that God wants gone. He tries to communicate with Samuel, his mentor, who had died through a medium. And he tries to eliminate David, a potential rival who he was very jealous of. His insecurity leads him to try to control everything. And it just spirals away from him. It doesn't end well. Then comes David, he of Goliath slain fame. Also an early cricketer. Who becomes a great military leader. He that wrote so many psalms. He's a deeply spiritual, contemplative, reflective guy. God describes him as a man after his own heart. Israel's greatest king. However, in midlife, the wheels start to spin and fall off his life. His distracted and inconsistent parenting leads his son Absalom to go in full revolt against him. And while having a holiday, he takes a shine to another man's wife. And in order to get her, he has her husband killed. Well, after David, his son Solomon becomes king. Solomon is reputedly the wisest man in the Bible, extraordinarily gifted by God. He wrote a big chunk of the wisdom literature of the Bible. He builds God's temple, a permanent place for community worship in Jerusalem. He's a great civilizer. If David was a man of war, well, Solomon's a man of peace. 
educated man of letters. He's what we would call now a Renaissance man. He's urbane, he's sophisticated, he's worldly. None of these kings, though, ever completely cleared out the Canaanites from the land. They tolerated these other people. Solomon even took it one step further. He enslaved some of them to be construction workers. Just like Pharaoh had previously done to the Israelites. One of the first things that Solomon does is make a treaty with another king to get wood for the temple. He not only amassed 14,000 horses, which is ancient equivalent of a tank army, many brought from Egypt, but he also marries Pharaoh's daughter. Maybe the great-granddaughter of the man that Moses had faced off against who had enslaved Israel. Solomon married her. He grows extraordinarily rich. He marries hundreds of women many of whom were foreigners and had hundreds more concubines. And as predicted, he allowed them to worship their idols in Israel. And later in his life, he joined in that idolatrous worship. Solomon took that list I had up before, the God's prescription for a godly king, and he just blew it apart. The wisest man in the Bible died a fool. Now remember, God didn't want kings. He wanted to be Israel's king with a judge to be the sort of person on the ground. He went along with their desire to have a king out of compassion for them. A bit like the grace that he shows to people whose marriages break down. He knows that we are human. And so he's merciful towards us. However, he created this plan B in which the king mediated God's rule in the country, while the priests mediated God's worship at the temple. 2 Samuel 7, God said this to King David through the prophet Nathan. When you lie down with your ancestors, when you die, I will raise up your offspring after you, and I will establish his kingdom. This is Solomon. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be a father to him, and he shall be a son to me. When he commits iniquity, I will punish him with a rod such as mortals use. But I will not take my steadfast love from him. Your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. This is what's called the Davidic covenant. Now we know that David's royal line ruling in Jerusalem ended when Babylon invaded some 400 years later. What this passage is referring to is the line of God's Messiah King, Lord Jesus Christ, who sits on David's throne ruling God's people forever. If you look at the genealogies of Jesus in the beginning of Luke and Matthew, you will see David and Solomon's names there. While they were imperfect men, Seriously imperfect. They ruled over God's peoples as kings. Their descendant, Jesus, is the perfect king of kings. God can work with and through imperfect people like you and I because he's always done so. He's had plenty of practice. Well, even the most cursory reading 
of the Old Testament history show there's one overriding priority for God. Many things matter to him, injustice towards the poor, the widows, the orphans, the strangers, murder, all sorts of things. But one thing soars far above all of those things. And that is that his people should not worship idols. Whether chemosh or busyness or money, whatever. I described him a few weeks ago as being like a jilted boyfriend whose love has gone off with another man at the dance. Someone who had nicer cowboy boots. His reaction to Israel flirting with other gods is quite intense. It's strong. Now the story is told of one of the Mughal emperors of India who married one woman who he loved intensely and they had a wonderful life together. And then one day, out of the blue, she died. And he descended into this massive, massive grief and he thought, I need to honour her, I need to remember her. I know what I'll do, I'll build a tomb. So he got the best architect in the kingdom, brought him down and said, would you build a tomb for my wife? And he says, yes. Of course, sir, I'd be honoured. Right, where is your wife? She's at home. Okay. He said to one of his soldiers, go to this man's home and kill his wife. He wanted his architect to know his pain. The architect went on to design and build this. Taj Mahal. A monument to both men's loss. In a sort of similar way, our God did a slightly similar thing. He told his prophet Hosea to marry the local prostitute Goma, who predictably was unfaithful to him. God made Hosea take her back, both knowing that she would break his heart. She would leave him again and again and again, and again he sent Hosea to take her back. God's point was... This is how I feel when my people go off and worship Baal or Chemosh or busyness. He felt betrayed. His love was that intense. Having a big army, making nice with Egypt, having lots of wives, making treaties, marriages with pagans, getting rich, tolerating idolaters, all those things have one thing in common. The king who does them shows that they are not wholly confident in God's promises to sustain Israel. So they need a plan B. They need a backup. So the king puts his faith in alliances with pagans, his own wealth, his military might. King Solomon the godly and the wise, well, he becomes just like any other king in the ancient Near East. You see, who or what you worship changes who you are. God doesn't need our worship for his own sake. He knows who he is and he knows what he's about. He does not need our reassurance. He wants we, his people, to worship him for our sake. He knows that if you worship a God that is brutal or cruel, like Chemosh of Moab, so shall you become. 
Likewise, if you worship a loving and gracious God, so shall you become. If you worship mammon or money, you'll become money-focused, measuring everything in financial terms. I had a situation once which demonstrated this incredibly well. I was taking a funeral for a great churchman, but his family were not Christian people. And in the planning meeting that you have, they asked me how much money I would want to take the funeral. And I said, none. He's one of our congregation. We don't charge for that. They could not understand that. They thought eventually, they came to the conclusion, I was doing it for free because he had previously given generously to the church. They did not understand that I just did not care about that. They couldn't get it. Money was their God. In identifying what we worship, we are saying that these qualities, these values, are the most important things to us. Worship shapes us. We as God's people today face a very similar challenge to be in the world but not of it, to paraphrase Jesus from John 17. We are to worship the God of the Bible, not the gods of our age, but this is where we live and they're all around us. It would be so nice to fit in. But we can't, because if we do, we're lost. One response to the world is to retreat into a huddle and hang together. It's warm and it's comfortable. Most extreme example of that is the exclusive Brethren Church, which won't have anything to do with anyone else. Have you ever heard one of them evangelising on the street? Exclusive brethren person? I've seen them a couple of times. It's loud, it's strident, and it's entirely unrelational. Once in the Lower Hutt Town Centre, I heard one of these guys going at it. I could hear him shouting from the other side of a busy street. His God sounded awful. Passers-by gave him a wide berth, which I imagine he was quite happy with. By contrast, on my side of the road, there was this nice new age person with pamphlets who smiled a lot and chatted with people as they went past. The exclusives are the extreme. This is the road to being a sect and ultimately the church dying. All right, the other extreme is when we embrace everything about the modern world and try to integrate it into our faith trying desperately to fit in. And churches that do that generally end up becoming social service agencies with no faith dimension. It's quite a surprise when you tell young people these days that Y at the C and YMCA or YWCA is Christian. Those organisations have left that behind long ago. Trying to fit in is the way of death. 3,000 years ago and now. Our call then is pretty challenging. To worship a God who is both gracious and truthful, but many of these truths are not particularly palatable outside that door. We can't stay faithful to the gospel and fit in. We are called to be a community that's open at the edge and committed to truth in the core. A friend of mine was a, a pastor in the Reformed tradition who are big on teaching and 
knowing what's right and doing what's right. Well, his marriage broke up. His reformed colleagues were not much help because to them he was a sinner who needed to repent. Their take was God hates divorce, so don't go there, suck it up. And two generations ago, that would have been the response in most of the Baptist world as well. God does hate divorce. It's truth. But God is also gracious to those whose lives get messy. My mate discovered that his dodgier pastor colleagues, who he'd previously looked down his nose at as a bit unbiblical, had a Jesus who was full of truth and grace, and they embraced him. I'm not pretending that engaging with the world while not fitting in is easy. It's not. We must faithfully worship the one true God while being gracious and accepting of those who come along that don't. I know of several people who have tentatively visited here over the last few years who have been beaten around the head with the truth by someone they just met. Sadly, they're not coming back. That's a bit tragic. If you meet someone here, I reckon, or anywhere that you don't know, get to know them. Then you might have the chance to share the gospel, to share your truth. Listen well before talking. We are to worship in truth, but show the world the grace that Jesus has shown us. Amen.